It's January 1717. Two ships cut through the turquoise waters north of the French Antilles. On the deck of the 26-gun Sultana, Samuel Bellamy looks to the east and studies the distant sky. After a decade or more at sea, Bellamy knows when the weather is about to turn. He can almost smell it. He scans the horizon. The Caribbean stretches out before him like a vast, featureless desert. No sign of danger. As the first drops of rain burst on the deck, he turns back to the northwest and studies the approaching shoreline of Saint-Croix. This small, uninhabited island is well known to him. It's an old pirate haunt. Bellamy knows which inlets are deep enough for his ships to enter safely, but too shallow for heavier vessels, like the Royal Navy frigate HMS Scarborough, who has been hunting them for weeks. He spots a cove where his small pirate fleet can anchor and wait out the oncoming storm. The two ships hug the coast, but as they round the headland, Bellamy is confronted with an unsettling scene. In the shallow waters of the bay lies a smoldering wreck, a sloop burnt down to the waterline. This is recent. The blackened hull is still smoking. The pirates spring to action. A cry of all hands goes up as men take their stations in readiness for whatever awaits them. Bellamy is alert, looking for any sign of movement. Nothing. Palm trees slowly shift in the breeze. They continue to drift silently into the harbor. As they get closer, scenes of struggle emerge, floating here and there as the debris of a recent battle. Further in are the remains of another ruined vessel, sunk by cannon fire. A murmur goes around the crew as someone spots the remains of a tangled black flag twisting in the surf. They count dozens of charred corpses floating in the water. Some bang dully against the wooden hull. Many of them are chained together by feet and hands. Bellamy scans the tree line, looking deep into the jungle beyond the beach. Did something move? Or someone? Gradually, the shadows become more distinct. Figures emerge. Brown bodies and white bodies, all ragged and covered in dirt. The survivors. The pirates send over a boat and begin ferrying the wretched men aboard. They explain how they came to be here. Just a week ago, their flotilla, commanded by pirate captain John Martel, was ambushed by a Royal Navy warship, HMS Scarborough. Bombarding them from the harbor, the 32-gun frigate sank one of their vessels and scattered the others. While attempting to flee, their vessel ran aground on the reef. Fearing the return of the Scarborough, Martel ordered the galley burned, along with the human cargo still locked below. The survivors are a mix of pirates and enslaved people of various nationalities. Wherever they're from, right now they are just pleased to be safely aboard. Bellamy appears to be their savior. Little do they know he is also the cause of their misfortune. 
As it turns out, HMS Scarborough was not actually searching for Martel. They were responding to reports of Bellamy. Funny how things turn out. Bellamy is quick to play the part of the rescuer. He welcomes them into his crew, regardless of their nation, language, or status. He needs all the help he can get. About a hundred or so men join on. It's a timely boost for his fleet. For weeks, Bellamy has been plotting his next move, a plan to increase his power and enhance his growing reputation as the most powerful pirate in the Americas. But Bellamy still has doubts. Will they be enough? I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Just four months before sailing into St. Croix, Samuel Bellamy was still inexperienced as a pirate captain, only recently given his first command, the Marianne. In just a short period, his fortunes and that of his crew would be seriously tested, and his ambitions would be questioned by those he trusts. But this young Englishman seems to have a golden touch. Quickly growing in confidence and experience, soon this determined farm boy will test his power and set his sights on the greatest prizes in the colonies. It is September 1716. The warm summer breeze coming off the Atlantic is paradise for Sam Bellamy. He is captain of the Marianne, and she sails easily through the idyllic waters of the Caribbean. Bellamy walks along the length of his ship. Some of his crew are at work, rigging sails, moving plunder, securing cannons. Someone barks encouragement to a group of reluctant volunteers as they swab the decks. Forced men can't expect to get the best jobs. The Marianne sails together with the French vessel Bustillon. The period following Bellamy's appointment as Commodore is a summer of eating, drinking, and merriment. The crew recklessly burn through the cured salted meats in a week before having to consume biscuits, bone soup, and fermented vegetables. There are new men on board the ship, but there are still old familiars. 
like Palsgrave Williams, Bellamy's friend and quartermaster, Labuse, the French buzzard, as well as James Ferguson, the Scottish medicine man. There is also Richard Noland, the Irish smooth talker they nicknamed Blarney. Once three sheets to the wind on rum, out comes his litany of dirty limericks. Bellamy should feel proud. Commodore of a pirate fleet, commanding almost 200 men. At only 27, he has achieved more in a year than most sailors could dream of in a lifetime. But he's not satisfied. Not yet. In fact, he is just getting started. What drives Bellamy's ambition? Some argue he's compelled by the social injustices he's suffered in the past, a grievance likely shared by many pirates of the Golden Age. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. There's a couple major factions among the Golden Age pirates, and they're defined by their motivations. The bulk of them appear to be, as Bellamy would later put it, Robin Hood's men. They see themselves as having been ordinary sailors and Royal Navy sailors who'd been terribly exploited and cheated and beaten and abused and fed terrible food and all the rest, and had finally had enough and had risen up against all of that to settle scores, to rob from the rich who'd been robbing from the poor and to take back a struggle, as it were. And Bellamy is definitely part of that. Whatever his reasons, on every horizon, Bellamy sees opportunity. But in the autumn of 1716, he's about to get a lesson in humility. It's late October. Bellamy and Labuse prowl the rocky shores of Hispaniola and Puerto Rico. The lookout on the Marianne spots a vessel, a potential prize. As they approach, Bellamy scans the ship through his eyeglass. He assesses her strengths and weaknesses. Is she a threat or is she prey? He's excited by what he sees. A triple-masted frigate flying French colors. She's big, standing in the water like a colossus. Despite their attentions, the French vessel holds her course. Perhaps she hasn't spotted them. Or perhaps she is waiting to see what they do first. Bellamy strains his eyes. He counts the French gun ports. Forty cannons. She's a mighty prize. Perhaps too mighty. The two pirate ships have less than 20 guns between them. It's risky. But the pirates have more men. They just need to get close enough. Bellamy must outmaneuver the vessel and board quickly, or his men will be massacred. The gap is closing. A decision must be made. Like most decisions on a pirate ship, it's put to a vote. Bellamy and Williams round up the crew and form a war council. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. This would end up being a crew decision as well. So Samuel Bellamy was all about really practicing democracy on his ships, probably more so than many other pirates. And all of this was backed up by a lot of eyewitness statements and trial testimonies and other reports from either survivors or from the pirates themselves who were later put on trial from his crew. So 
Bellamy was a very good tactician, and he was seen to be as both a good and strong and fair leader by his men because of this. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. So in most instances, I know it's a weird word to use, but in most instances, pirate attacks were relatively civil affairs, not full of blood and gore. However, there were a number of instances, and they're the ones that are most exciting, where the merchant ship fought back. Many of these merchant ships were relatively large. Many of them had cannons on board. Some of them had muskets and cutlasses and other military implements on board. And there were a number of brave merchant captains and crews who fought the pirates. Sometimes they won. Sometimes, but not often, Bellamy makes his case. They discuss the risks and the potential prize. Bellamy hasn't steered them wrong yet. They vote and break out in a cheer. Attack! But the French ship is ready for them. One by one, the gun ports flip open and iron barrels roll out for action. There'd be no mind games this time. It's a straight shootout. The pirates try to get upwind and close the gap while staying out of range. But the French captain is good. No matter where they move, he keeps them at arm's length. Finally, an opportunity opens up. As the French ship tacks, they catch a good breeze and steal a march on their target. They quickly close in. The pirates ready themselves. Grappling hooks, axes and pistols are primed. But it's not enough. The French ship turns again, like a shark baring its teeth. A row of glinting cannons is revealed. The Marianne is facing a full broadside of 20 guns. Bellamy grimaces. He orders the helm hard to starboard. But it is too late. A wave of flames erupts from her hull, accompanied with a roll of thunder. Cannonballs tear through the sky and into the Marianne her wooden shell and unleashing a storm of splintered wood upon the crew. Screams go up all about him. Four men are seriously injured as blood soaks the deck. One poor sailor takes a direct shot and is eviscerated. Some of the newer recruits recoil at the gore. With the acrid stench of gunpowder still hanging in the air, Bellamy reassesses the situation. Clearly, these Frenchmen know their business. Even now, they are quickly reloading. Another shot might destroy the masts and disable the Marianne. They'd be a sitting duck. Bellamy gives the order to break off the attack. A final cannon fires from a distance. A mocking salute. The wounded are comforted and carried below deck. Stunned, Bellamy looks back, watching the French ship coolly glide away. For the first time, he's beaten. He inspects the damage to his crew and the ship. There's a debate as to the identity of the dismembered crewman. Eventually, someone recognizes a shoe. Although shaken, in the following weeks, Bellamy grows more determined. He swears to himself he will never be bested again. 
the battle has made one thing clear. The Marianne is not powerful enough for what he has planned. He intends to expand his fleet and his crew. It's dawn on November 9th. As the sun breaks over the horizon, Bellamy and the Marianne and Labuse and the Postillon are continuing to cruise the French Antilles. A lookout spots a sail, prompting a flurry of activity on deck. Bellamy emerges from his cabin and takes in a deep breath. The sea air is sweet and invigorating. He searches down his spyglass and spots the British merchant ship, Bonetta. Nothing like a raid to kick off the day. Bellamy signals to Labuse. The pursuit begins. The French pirate ship runs up the black flag. As they close, Bellamy's gunner fires a warning shot over the merchant's bow. The merchant captain, Abija Savage, knows the routine. He orders the ship to loosen the sails and turn into the wind, coming to a quick stop. In the vast majority of cases, when a pirate ship would come into view and decide it was going to attack or stop a merchant ship, they would raise their pirate flag, their Jolly Roger, which could have a skull and crossbones on it or a skeleton with a heart bleeding blood. And the black flag signaled to the merchantmen what they already suspected. This is a pirate. They're going to attack us if we don't surrender. And because every once in a while, pirates would viciously attack merchantmen, when you saw the pirate flag, you think, oh boy, if I oppose them, I might die. And I don't own this ship, and I'm not gonna put my life on the line to protect this merchant ship from these pirates. Once aboard, Bellamy employs all manner of scare tactics to intimidate the Bonetta crew. His pirates are loud and wild as they go about the ship with pistols out and cutlasses drawn. Bellamy himself is visually impressive. Tall, tanned, and lean. His long, dark hair tied back in ribbons. He is also dressed fantastically, wearing an exotic mix of fine clothes taken from earlier victims and bristling with weapons, including four dueling pistols strapped to his chest. Aside from the crew, aboard the Bonetta are a number of civilian passengers being ferried back to the colonies. Unlike the sailors, these poor landlubbers are totally unprepared for what awaits them. For most of them, pirates are the stuff of nightmares, a bedtime story to scare children. And like children, fear now overcomes them. Screams and weeping can be heard through the pirates' shouts. During this raid, a witness overhears the pirates boasting. As they plunder the Bonetta, they reportedly refer to themselves as Robin Hood's men, a comment that will become the foundation of the Bellamy legend. One of the big aspects of Samuel Bellamy's fame is this idea that he was kind of like a Robin Hood of the seas. And this phrase does come from an actual source, actual testimony of one of his victims who said that members of Bellamy's crew referred to themselves as Robin Hoods. And the reason being is that Bellamy and members of his crew would say to their victims, they would say things like, 
look, we are poor people and we are taking money that has been hoarded by these corrupt British people. And you stay with us and you'll become wealthy the way you should be, the way you deserve to be. Everybody gets an equal share. Hence why they refer to themselves as being Robin Hood of the sea. So was Bellamy a social warrior or a common criminal? And was he typical of other pirates of the era? There's no other evidence that any other pirate made a statement remotely like this. And there is no evidence whatsoever that these pirates took from the rich or took from the merchants to give to the poor in the sense of the broader poor masses. The only poor people that they wanted to give to was themselves. So if this was a Robin Hood analogy, It's a very self-centered, selfish Robin Hood analogy. It's not the one that's been passed down to us as the broad story of Robin Hood being this noble character who is looking to right uh, social injustices. Whatever the pirate's real motivations, the Bonetta is quickly taken to a quiet cove to anchor and assess her crew and contents. If indeed Bellamy and his merry men did behave like Robin Hood's gang, it's easy to imagine how they would have happily rifled through the pockets of their wealthy captives. On this occasion, there's not much of a haul. Some small coins, a pocket watch, some jewelry. But these are not the only treasure Bellamy is after. On any raid like this, a captain hopes to take on new crew, both for overpowering other ships and maintaining a pirate fleet. Manpower is a vital resource, and right now, Bellamy is on a recruitment drive. Incentives are a mix of carrot and sword. Some crewmen will happily volunteer. Most of the pirate recruits who fueled the expansion of this golden age of piracy were sailors on board the ships that the pirates captured. Sailors who saw the pirates arrive and break open the Madeira wine and start partying and said, hey, I want to come with you. You know, it's been a real drag serving on this ship. They give us weevily bread and none of that Madeira and we're paid lousy and they cheat us out of our wages. And when we get home, their press gangs are waiting to drag us into the Royal Navy. It looks like a much better life. And so a proportion of the victim crew, so to speak, of the pirates would come and join them. He would give people the option to join the pirate crew. He would very much pressure them into doing it, saying, you know, join our crew. You're going to get riches. You're going to be treated really well. We really, really need men like you. You'll be awesome. If the men decided to and they signed the articles, they would have a pretty good time on Bellamy's ship. They would get treated very well. They would get to participate in all sort of democratic processes, such as votes, which Bellamy very much encouraged on his ship. He would get equal parts of the share. Despite the compelling job offer, many victims still resist. Some are forced to join against their will, especially if they could fill a specific role or bring some missing expertise to the crew. Bellamy's years on the seas are littered with accounts of him forcing men aboard. Take Richard Cavalli, an Englishman forced due to his navigational skills, or Peter Hoff, a Swedish man kidnapped for his broad knowledge of the Southern Caribbean area. So Robin Hood or not, at the end of the day, he's a pirate. He'll take what he wants. There also are some things that pirates did that seem to fly in the face of this notion of democracy, the most egregious of which is how many times pirates forced men to become parts of their crew. 
that doesn't smack as democracy. That doesn't seem to be a very democratic way of going about your business. But it was a necessity because pirates relied on large crews not only to overpower a potential enemy, but also to man additional ships that they might want to add to their pirate flotilla. So when it became harder and harder to recruit pirates in the more organic way, they went to the inorganic way, which is to force men to become pirates. And Bellamy, by virtue of his rapid rise, is constantly short of hands. In one instance, they take a merchant ship, St. Michael, traveling from Ireland to Jamaica. They forced 14 men to join on, including a number of carpenters. They're given two choices, join the crew or die. Despite the threats, several of the men resist. In these instances, Bellamy's capacity for mercy would be tested. If they refused, Bellamy would express his disappointment. Sometimes these men wouldn't be treated very nicely. They were in the trials of survivors from Bellamy's attacks. They said that they'd been tied up, they'd been beaten, hot wax stripped upon them as a way for Bellamy to try to force them to join. If they still wouldn't, then they would usually be marooned if they kept them on the ship as a forced pirate, but they refused to sign the pirate articles, then they would get no equal share and they would have no vote in any sort of major decision. They inevitably submit and sign on with the pirates. Though witnesses report some did cry and express their grief at their fate, in cases like these, forced men often beg their compatriots to post ads in the press reporting their kidnapping. Their lives might later depend on it. If they get caught aboard a pirate ship, one of the forced men from the St. Michael is carpenter Thomas Davis. The last thing he imagined when leaving Bristol was being violently kidnapped and forced to serve on a pirate ship. All he can do is keep his head down and pray for salvation. But his fate is now entwined with Bellamy's, for better or for worse. Back in the cove, Bellamy and Labuse are nearly done assessing the Bonetta's contents. One of the other forced men on Bellamy's crew, the Swede Peter Hoff, thinks this is his chance to escape. He is swiftly recaptured and whipped for his insolence. The general terrifying effect of these pirates has most of the Bonetta's passengers trembling with fear. But amongst the weeping and wailing of the gentlemen and women, there is one passenger who is enchanted by what he sees, 10-year-old John King. In spite of all the evident cruelty, he desperately wants to join Bellamy's crew. He insists on joining them and his mother tries to stop him. And he declares, according to witnesses who later give depositions, that he says he would rather kill himself if he were restrained and stopped from joining the pirates and somehow manages to beg, demand, threaten his way past his mother to actually join the pirates and Bellamy and the crew take him in. So he joins them and is with them until the very end of Bellamy's piracy career. And it strikes you as a bit unusual to have a 10-year-old aboard, but remember this is at a time when there were lots and lots of 10-year-old cabin boys and ships boys on naval vessels and merchant vessels. So that itself wasn't so unusual, but the fact that a wealthy passenger's son would see the pirates and what they were doing and find them attractive enough to insist on joining them gives a sense of just what kind of allure and glamour and attraction they must have had to many people. 
even in their own time, pirates were celebrated in fiction. To young John King, names like Francis Drake, Thomas Avery, and Henry Morgan were great folk heroes. In fact, in the 18th century, the publicity pirates received probably helped with recruitment on pirate ships. I think that most of the people in the colonies, and certainly back in Great Britain, knew what pirates were all about, knew about these pirate codes, some of which were reproduced in newspapers. They could read accounts of pirates. There were some plays that were made about pirates, and there were an increasing number of books or parts of books that would talk about piracy. So it wasn't something that was unknown. And I have no doubt that there were people who became aware of piracy by reading about it or hearing about it from their peers that did decide to enter the pirate ranks because it looked attractive. After the Bonetta is released, Bellamy sets out once again. His ambition is undiminished. He's now on the lookout for a ship that will enhance his power. A ship with more guns that can carry more men. The pirates are planning to build a fleet so large and powerful that no one in the West Indies would dare challenge them. They don't have to wait long. A few weeks later, Bellamy and Labuse chase down the Sultana, a 26-gun British rigged galley. It's a formidable vessel, smaller than the French frigate that repelled them back in October, but she's fast and stronger than the Marianne. After firing a few warning shots, the Sultana quickly surrenders. Bellamy takes command. Meanwhile, Paul's Grave Williams is promoted to captain of the Marianne. The pirate fleet grows again. However, the boost is short-lived. Despite a very successful partnership, Labuse does not care to follow where Bellamy is headed next. From day one, he's seen the ambition growing in this young Englishman. Their experience tackling the French frigate was chastening, but Bellamy's appetite for glory has only been heightened. Now with his new flagship, Bellamy feels invincible. Labuse, the buzzard, is too experienced to get carried away. Sometimes it's better to go it alone. Labuse and Bellamy part ways in December 1716. But unlike Bellamy's parting with Jennings or Hornigold, this split is amicable. They agree to reunite and continue raiding at a future point. In truth, neither man will see the other again. With Labuse and the Frenchman's pirate crew gone, Bellamy is left with fewer than a hundred sailors under his command. He can barely man both his new flagship Sultana and the battle-scarred Marianne. The fleet is still leagues away from becoming the naval power that Bellamy envisions. But as usual, fortune seems to shine on the English pirate. In January 1717, Bellamy sails to the Virgin Islands and discovers the wreckage of two pirate sloops on the shore of Saint Croix, along with the 130 or so survivors of the Martel pirate gang. Just when he needed it, Bellamy manages to find a ready-made pirate crew. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Martel's men are a mix of veteran pirates and recently captured enslaved people. Given the need for manpower, it's likely he welcomes them all on board. 
So his crew in particular was very diverse with about half of them being white, Anglo-European, including British, French, Dutch, Spanish, and even Swedish crew members. He had Native Americans and indigenous people from North America, the Caribbean, and possibly even South America on board. There were African Americans on his ship, and he also had anywhere up to two dozen Africans that he had liberated from a slave ship that he'd incorporated onto his crew. So this makes his ship probably one of the most diverse ones, especially with having so many former enslaved people absorbed into their crew. He isn't the first pirate to bring enslaved people on board as free pirates. It's thought that up to 30% of Blackbeard's crews were non-white. But it raises the question of how race relations may have worked on 18th century pirate ship. Pirates are sometimes held up as some sort of social revolutionaries. But how were non-white crewmen really treated in a pirate community? Were enslaved people as free as everyone else? We have enough evidence that shows that there were quite a few black pirates who were treated by their pirate brethren as peers. Do we know exactly how they were spoken to on board and whether there still was sort of a class system based on the color of your skin? No, but broadly speaking, they were pirates just like the other people were pirates and they certainly shared in the booty and the distribution of wealth. So that is an amazing statement in and of itself in the early 1700s when black people in the European world were treated horrifically as less than human. But at the same time, there were a number of pirates who treated enslaved people as enslaved people. And they would sell them at the first opportunity and probably treat them rather poorly while they were on board the ship. Dr. Manishag Bao is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. It's difficult to make the case that while, say, a black man on board a pirate ship would potentially face less racial terror and discrimination than he would on land, that doesn't mean there's like no racism and he's embraced as an equal and treated as an equal and paid as an equal. And in fact, there's a lot of examples to show that pirates were perfectly happy to participate in all kinds of enslavements. So it's an interesting question. Was there probably more social equality on a pirate ship than like in a Navy ship? Yes, no question. But I think you have to not go too far. Piracy likely offered a complicated form of freedom to enslaved people. But without doubt, pirates like Bellamy benefited from having a diverse crew. Having a really diverse crew wasn't just a way of being socially forward. It was very practical. When you had a diverse crew, you're able to converse with pretty much anybody you come across. You could perhaps get all kinds of different skills on board your ship. And by bringing all of this onto your ship, this could really, really enhance the way that your crew is run, its efficiency, the skills, creating a multilingual ship. This makes the pirate ship very powerful because it has so many more resources. There's little evidence to suggest Bellamy was some kind of social liberator, but he was a leader who was both practical and strategic. By building a crew of men who come from all corners of the globe, Bellamy increases his fleet's strength. His men are ready to fight and die for their liberty and will follow him anywhere. In the middle of January 1717, Bellamy is a power to be reckoned with. The Sultana and Marianne boast over 30 guns and a combined crew of around 200 men. His confidence fully restored, 
he flexes his newfound muscle. Around January 16th, the fleet sails right into the harbor of Spanish Town, the capital of Virgin Gorda in the Virgin Islands. As the pirate ships drop anchor within cannon range of the town, the royal governor, Thomas Hornby, watches on in terror. As chance would have it, Hornby was the one who tipped off HMS Scarborough to the Martel gang's whereabouts on Saint Croix. In the Caribbean, what goes around comes around. Bellamy's crew, including the former Martel pirates, are delighted to enact their vengeance. Hornby looks on helplessly as the 200 or so pirates spill out onto the docks and flood through the town. The population of Spanish Town is largely made up of women, children, and enslaved people. As Bellamy's multicultural horde takes over the taverns, brothels, and stately homes, Hornby can only sit in his mansion and pray for mercy. For two weeks, Bellamy makes the colony his own personal members' club. A number of locals happily trade with the pirates. Some even volunteer to join his crew. In the raucous confusion, however, some of Bellamy's forced men try and go the other way, once again making a break for freedom. Perhaps unfortunate carpenter Thomas Davis is one of them, desperate to get away from Bellamy's thugs. They run to Governor Hornby and plead for sanctuary, but they are sent straight back after Bellamy threatens to engulf the town in flames, starting with Hornby's estate. Few pirates have ever taken over a royal colony before. Every day, Bellamy's reputation grows closer to mythic proportions. But Bellamy wants more. He and his longtime ally, Paulsgrave Williams, start planning, plotting. They set their sights on a return to New England. Does Williams dream of a great homecoming on Rhode Island? Does Bellamy remember those who once shunned him? His lover, Mary Hallett, and her disapproving parents? Or is he more preoccupied with the idea of the rich merchant shipping leaving the North American colonies bound for Europe? He'll soon strike farther north than most pirates would dare. Even Boston will bow to him. This is only the beginning. Or is it the beginning of the end? Next week on Real Pirates, the conclusion of Black Sam Bellamy, the farm boy that has risen to become the Prince of Pirates. Heading into the spring of 1717, Bellamy hits even greater heights with a capture that catapults him into the history books. It will transform him into a naval powerhouse. Colonies quiver at the mere mention of his name. But will it also be his undoing? we finally unravel the man from the myth. Social revolutionary, gentleman robber, heartbroken lover, or cutthroat criminal? Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. 
written by Luke Coons and McAllister Beckson. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. Thank you.